You're listening to the Heart of Giving podcast with Art Taylor, powered by BBBgive.org. Here we explore the motivations that form the basis of giving and service. We inspire generosity and celebrate the transformative effects that giving and service have on the human spirit and on community. The conversations featured on the podcast also uncover giving strategies that educate and provide tools to help listeners make impactful gifts of both their time and money. We hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome to the Heart of Giving podcast, powered by BBBgive.org. Give.org is the nation's standards-based charity evaluator. It's also your one-stop source for information on giving and reports on the most asked about charities. I'm Art Taylor. A few weeks ago, I had the distinct pleasure and honor of doing a presentation on a panel at Columbia University School of Professional Studies in an event co-hosted by the School of Professional Studies and the School of International and Public Affairs. I felt very honored to appear alongside the head of the Ford Foundation, Mr. Darren Walker, and our panel was moderated by former mayor of Philadelphia, Michael Nutter, who I've known many years, and being a Philadelphian myself, um, or at least from Philadelphia, I don't live in Philadelphia anymore. But this panel was focused on diversity, equity, and inclusion. And for those of you interested in hearing what took place during that panel, and it was an amazing discussion, I encourage you to look it up on YouTube where you can find links to that session. It was an amazing session. I was, uh, again, really honored that Columbia did it. And we were able to talk about many of the things that organizations and how philanthropy can lead on DEIA and lead on making change in the world. Um, so uh, you might wanna, might wanna check that out if you're interested in that theme. But one of the really interesting things that happened to me at that event is that I got to meet a young woman who is quite remarkable. She's a master's student at Columbia University SIPA, School of International and Public Affairs, concentrating in economic and political development and specializing in African studies. And we got to talking a little bit and I was absolutely blown away by the work that she's doing as a master's degree student. She told me about work she was doing helping people in Ukraine, particularly people of color, black people in particular, who were essentially trapped in Ukraine. And she was doing what she could by traveling back and forth, helping people get what they needed to get out of Ukraine and positioned in other places around the world where they could actually not only get out, but also complete their educations because many of them were students in these other places. And the more I listened to her, the more I realized that we needed to get her on the show 
to talk about her work in particular, but to also understand how it is that someone so early in life could be doing such important global work. Because obviously not many of us think that we can have that kind of impact in our lives at any point in our lives. So here she is. Her name is Masiri Aribo. And she's here also with her partner who started this organization called Noir United International. And it is a global development and humanitarian organization focused on centering black and other marginalized people in their developing countries. And Nassim, Nassim Ashford, who is her partner, they started this organization together, is a social science researcher, activist, and entrepreneur. He is a Jamaican-American and native of Atlanta, Georgia. Nassim is a master's of public health candidate at Yale School of Public Health, and he's concentrating in social behavioral sciences. And before attending Yale, he participated in the Centers for Disease Control's Public Health Associates Program, where he conducted COVID-19 infection and chronic disease surveillance for the local health departments in the United States. So both of these young people, and I, I get to say young because I'm not so young anymore, um, are quite impressive. And I guarantee you, listening to their stories today will likely drive you to want to say, what am I doing? <laughs> it made me ask the question, what am I doing to really have impact, not only in the community, but in the world? So Masiri, welcome. Nassim, welcome to the Heart of Giving podcast. Thank you. Thank you so much, Art, for having us. I'm really excited to be here and to share a little bit about our work. And I'm glad that Nassim was uh, here with us as well to uh, talk and add some more nuance to our to that conversation. Well, fantastic. It's great to have you both. Well, I wanted to just start out by asking you about your organization. And maybe, Nassim, you can just sort of tell me about the work that you're doing and how the organization got started. So Noir United International is a global development and humanitarian organization that focuses on centering Black people and development solutions. And so what that means is we're working on development and humanitarian issues. Development being being in the community and building up the community, empowering the community before and during times of peace or in times of, of just now, the time of now. Whereas the humanitarian aspect comes in when issues and crisis occur, we have teams that we plan to send out in order to assist the community in times of need, such as our work with assisting African refugees in Ukraine. So it's, it's trying to tackle an issue that happens on both sides, both where the community is being underdeveloped on the one side, and then at the same time, we have chronic disasters that contributely, uh, consistently affect Black communities around the world. We want to have a team that's available to assist in times of need. So this is remarkable to me. I'm still sort of blown away by this because not many people that I know have this global focus on things. 
So your work does, and you mentioned um, having teams, my Siri, what does that actually mean that you have teams? So we are, we were founded in 2020, right after we graduated from uh, our undergraduate institutions, Mercer University. And essentially, we are a team of five, six people. And right now, uh, primarily the work that we're doing in Ukraine, uh, it's been spearheaded by Nassim and I. And so we've been doing a lot of the heavy lifting and heavy loading for this work. But we've been able to make a lot of impact in a very short run- amount of time. And we've been able to maintain and remain consistent throughout the year since beginning our work. And so uh, this team right now is, like I said, about six people right now, but we're, we're attracting a lot of interest. And we're, our goal is to really mobilize our community members and have uh, them be engaged within our work. Because, you know, the goal of Noir United is to uh, center Black people, center Black people in into doing community development and to see, showing them that, you know, they can be in charge of determining their futures. Well, you're relatively new as an organization. So I can, you know, most organizations that have started two years ago are still pretty much in a planning phase. They're not really doing much on the ground. But here you are actually making trips to Ukraine. What happens when you go there? What are you actually doing? Tell the audience. So when we go to Ukraine, our primary response is to provide students and families who are of African descent from Ukraine with humanitarian resources. So that can be food, water, material resources, such as like folk, I mean, clothing and other items needed. And then also providing them with mental health services, legal support and advocacy, supporting their advocacy work and raising awareness about uh, their experiences that they're having throughout Europe and, you know, that they've been having since leaving Ukraine. And so really our work is centered around raising awareness about the racism that was faced and, you know, making sure that their stories are not forgotten in history about uh, how how they were treated when they were leaving Ukraine. Now, Nassim, you tell me, but do many people really even understand that there are Black students from around the world studying in Ukraine who need this kind of help? i just tell you my experience. I remember it was the end of March and I was on Twitter and I was on the news and they said that Russia had just launched an invasion into Ukraine. And I remember seeing the news and on the news, I saw a Black person at the train station. And in my mind, I was like, wow. There's black people in Ukraine. My mind, my mind was blown. Like my, my, it was beyond my imagination. I didn't even think that there would be black people in Ukraine. And so I saw the video, the clip of black people in Ukraine. And then while on Twitter, I saw a link, a random link, and it was talking about racism and discrimination at the border. And I was like, "What's this about?" And then I started all started seeing all of these videos of students posting about what was happening to them and, and got like deeply pulled into like this whole other area of the internet and, and just the world. And I think without having that initial hook, people just wouldn't know because it's not, it's not something that's meant for us to know. It's something that's kind of on, on the hush. And so without like organizations like us and other people that have been working in the space to advocate and the students themselves, like the community that should know doesn't know. Yeah. 
because I have to admit, we did a number of videos on what was happening in Ukraine from a humanitarian standpoint. And no one talked about black people in Ukraine needing help and discrimination in Ukraine uh, and what was going on in the humanitarian side of things. So this is all new to me. And I, I'm somewhat, frankly, embarrassed that I didn't know more. And it's just fortuitous that I met Masiri to really help me appreciate, you know, what people are dealing with. But let's talk about some of the discrimination and challenges that black people in particular are having in this very difficult situation for anybody. It's difficult for everybody. But to add discrimination to the elements, what are we talking about when we say discrimination? What are we experiencing? What are people experiencing there? So to describe it to you in the most simplest terms, imagine there's three lines. There's one line for Ukrainian women and kids. There's one line for Ukrainian men, young men. And then there's one line for Africans and third country nationals. And for every five Ukrainian women that are allowed to go past the border, two Ukrainian men are allowed to go. And one African is allowed to go. People were on the buses that were pulled off of buses and their buses were seized by Ukrainian nationals and white people and were told to get off and said that they had to walk to the border. They were they were students that waited hours, two hours, three hours, 24 hours at the border in the cold and the snow and watched others go by. And so the experience for them was finding, trying to find a border that they could go to that would allow them to pass and that they could get safe entry into the next country. Masiri, are you able to connect with other humanitarian organizations that were trying to do work there? Now, I do know that some were having difficulty entering the country to do work. And a lot of the assistance that people were receiving, I'm just talking about in general now, was taking place in places like Poland, you know, bordering nations. And that's where most people were getting help. But when I spoke to Natalie Juresko, who was a former finance minister to the Ukraine, she indicated that not many people, there was a lot more help needed for people who actually left in the Ukraine because many humanitarian organizations weren't actually able to get in. How did you find that experience? Have you all actually been able to enter the country? Probably not. It would be amazing to me if you did. So we have we have not entered uh, the country. However, we have been working in a bordering countries uh, such as Poland, Hungary, Germany, and essentially getting access to that area was, I would say in the beginning, it was fairly, it wasn't as difficult as we imagined it would be because there were lots of people coming from around the world to help Ukrainian refugees. And, you know, they were all coming to Poland, going to the borders, going to the the medical border. And essentially we were able to interact with a lot of humanitarian actors within Poland. And after going to Poland and going to Germany and going to Hungary and seeing what happened to a lot of students, uh, we were able to assess the reports that we saw on social media were true. And that, you know, students were facing segregation at the at the borders. They were being pushed back and forced to wait longer hours, longer days 
to cross the border. And so once confirming that, we were able to go to larger organizations like Mercy Corps, like Care International, and, you know, really tell them uh, in detail about what we found and what we saw and, you know, raise awareness and see what kind of help and assistance they can provide to this community that's been overlooked so far because the primary focus was on Ukrainian nationals and other third country nationals, people from the African continent, people from across Southeast Asia, they were facing discrimination and weren't given the chance to receive the amount of humanitarian assistance that other groups were able to receive. And I think one of the key things about that was this was a moment where everyone around the world was mobilizing to support Ukraine because of the injustice that was happening. But having to be a Black person in Ukraine or a Black or brown person dealing with the trauma of war, but not only the trauma of war, but also the trauma of racism, you know, that takes that experience to a whole nother level of impact because essentially when you realize that you are, one, your life is in, in danger because there is an invasion. And then secondly, not only is there an invasion, but now because you are black or you are brown, your life is at an even higher risk because they're, they're basically telling you that your life isn't as important. And so you have to wait for other people whose lives are more valuable to cross the border. And that is at the root of, you know, the problem Noir United is trying to solve with anti-Black racism and how that impacts the humanitarian space, how that impacts the development space, and why we need to be talking about it and centering it in our conversations. Let me ask Nassim, what did you find to be the most, I would say, challenging aspect of what you were trying to do there? I think originally our most challenging thing was trying to connect with people here in the States to share the message and let them know what was going on. We sent hundreds of emails all over and got a very low response. And it just took us to really find it within ourselves to to just go out there on our own. What were you asking for in those? That's interesting. What were you asking for? What was your call to action in your emails? So originally our call to action, we were working with a group of students that were in Kherson, Ukraine. It's an area that was overtaken by the Russians early on in the war. And we were trying to speak out and reach U.S. representatives and humanitarian organizations to ask for a humanitarian corridor so that these people could get out. But the humanitarian corridor never came and we never received a response. And so because of that, it just kind of pulled us deeper into the mission where we started and we actually helped to evacuate them from the area by working with Russian translators and other people that were on the ground that we met through online apps and chat rooms and stuff like that. And so we were really just trying to raise awareness and and let people know that there was Africans that were stuck and had no way to get out. And, you know, over time, we, we found the right people and made the connections, but it definitely took a lot of work on our part in order to find those whose mission aligned with something that we will be doing too. And Masiri, what would you say was your your biggest sort of success or the thing that gave you the most, I'll use the word joy, but the thing that gave you the most pride that you, given what you were able to do? I think that our success story, I, I would go back to the beginning in March when we first went to Europe 
we went there because after three weeks of conversation, of meeting with students who were stuck in bunkers, stuck in the basements of their universities in Ukraine, uh, and cursing Ukraine like Nassim mentioned, after being able to evacuate, help them with their evacuation through the use of Russian translators and through the use of different taxi services and bus services, once they were able to cross the border and take the train to another country, we met students firsthand that we had been working with and that we had grown to to find community with. And meeting them in person for the first time and actually seeing that people who were who we were video chatting with or who were putting out PSA videos all over social media were they were real people and they were real students who were facing an extreme amount of trauma and, you know, a life-changing event that they had never expected. And so being able to finally see the people we were we were doing this work for in person and give them housing, buy them new clothes, uh, talk to them and really show them that they were not alone in this situation, that there are people around the world, Black people around the world that care about them. I think that that's what was the most fulfilling moment for us all because it showed us that this work needed to continue and it gave us the drive to, once we left Europe, it gave us the drive to continue advocating for this for these students and to show them that if this were a situation in the United States, who would be the equivalent of the African students in Ukraine? It would be Black people here, Black other marginalized communities here in the United States that would face the same issue. And so not only did that motivate us to continue working more, but it also showed us that like if this could happen to one of these students in Ukraine, what could happen to me one day if a situation like this were to occur? And I would like to add that like an, another motivating part of it was because that we are also students who are studying in, in these Ivy League institutions and they are also students. And so this connection between us being students and coming to these institutions to better our lives, better ourselves, help our communities, help our families, uh, it's all rooted in the same purpose. And, you know, because our purpose aligned really well, I, I saw this as an opportunity for us to support a community that's abroad and show why Black people around the world should care about the issues that are happening to us and that are affecting our communities in a negative way. Now, both of you, I, I assume, have families. And uh, my daughter, by the way, Masiri, is a SEPA graduate, maybe about, I don't know, 10 years or so ago. And if she told me that she was heading to the Ukraine during a war to help rescue people, I would have some concern about that. I would have some concern about that. I wouldn't stop her. I wouldn't stop her. But I would have a lot of concern. I would be very worried about her. I would be probably be thinking, well, don't you think you should just focus on your studies? Don't you think you should just graduate first? Um, because obviously these trips aren't necessarily helping your GPA necessarily. And also, you know, I think about the danger associated with this, you know, just from the standpoint of your, your well-being. How did your family and friends react when you told them that you were doing this, both of you, but did you just not tell them? <laughs> well, it was, it was honestly a mix 
of, of a lot of things. But when we first told our parents that we had made the decision to go to Poland and meet with these people that we had been working with, they heard us and they knew that, that we were working on this project and that we were assisting people from our phones. But when we told them that we were going there, I think everyone was a little bit worried at, originally. But as we like continued on the journey, they really like latched on and they were there with us too. So as we were making our decisions and, and when, when we plan our trips to go back, we always consult with them and ask them, you know, what do you think we should do? So they're also a part of this project as well. Masiri, is that your situation too? Yeah, I mean, just to, Nassim brought up a really good point. They are, you know, when you when you talk about our team, uh, I didn't even include my parents, but they played a big role in, in helping motivate us and guide us on this trip because it was such a new experience for all of us and we had never done anything like this before. And so I would say in the beginning, they were very supportive of us doing the work and like Nassim said, organizing from virtually when we were trying to reach out to different community organizations in the United States. And also like, for example, my mom, she is the president of the Basket Guinean Association, which is a, a Guinean American association that's focused on supporting community in Atlanta. She was able to use her contacts to connect me with Guinean associations in Ukraine and Guinean associations in Poland, Guinean associations in France. And so they were helping us. They were supporting our wild dream. <laughs> and I think like we have a history of always trying to do big work and be ambitious. And so I think this was at first to them, they thought this was just another project <laughs> that we were had a new interest in for this week or next week. Yeah, once we went to Poland, I think I would say for me, I kind of just told my parents as I was leaving. <laughs> so then I said, hey, um, you know, I, I, we're going to go to Poland tomorrow. <laughs> so I'll, you know, I'll check in with you when I when I land. And I think. I think they were supportive. I feel like in, in the end they were skeptical, but both Nassim's parents and, and my parents were very supportive of us and, you know, wanted to see where we were going to go with it. Now you were able to get other support too. So how are you getting this funded? Are you self-funding it? Are you, you know, like paying for all this yourself or were you able to get any grant funding or anything like that to, to help your organization do this work? Yeah, we've been able to get grant funding and funding from donors. We have a, a grant with the Open Society Foundation and with Mercy Corps and have got various donations from outside churches and community leaders and things like that. So how did you manage that? I mean, it's not easy to just walk up to a foundation and say, hey, I got this idea. Give me some money. We're a new organization. I mean, that's, how did that come about? I mean, that's honestly what we did. <laughs> that's awesome. That's crazy good. That's awesome. That's honestly what <laughs> while we were in Poland, the first time meeting with these students, my mother works at Care International and then Masiri's mentor is the CEO of Mercy Corps. And mm -hmm. so we had like these connections and we're working, me and Masiri were like, okay, well, we know these people. We might as well try and just see what happens. And so we were able to reach out through the grapevine and meet with the people who were working on the issues of Ukraine in Poland. So we met with Care International Poland. We met with Mercy Corps Poland. And we told them about our work and what we were doing. And through conversations, we were able to submit grant proposals. 
Uh, we didn't get every grant proposal, but we were able to work on them. And it, it was a really big learning lesson for us. Honestly, from like being a new organization, I feel like this year we went from phase three to like phase seven, you know? So, <laughs> so it was a it was a good transition that was a, a huge learning experience for us and it allowed us to grow in a lot of ways. So let me ask you again about your your upbringing because again, I don't think the average 20 something is sitting at home following the news, following the internet, thinking about how can I help students from Africa and the African diaspora get through this difficult time in Ukraine. I just don't think many people are thinking that way. I could be wrong, but I think what you're doing is a bit unusual, frankly. So where does this come from? What is it about your lives that have given you this unusual sort of lens on the world and, and the international community in particular? What is it that, that is given you given you this gift of willingness to help others in these difficult situations i'll start with you nasim so first i would say my family and most significantly i would say my dad my dad is Irvin ashford jr he's the senior vice president of comerica bank in dallas texas and like west coast and growing up i watched my dad in the community and I watched how everyone always said his name, Irv, 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 Irv. And it was the impact that they had on his life. I was able to see how how it was just shining. It was so much shine around him in the community. And it showed me that if you're going to be in a position of power, if you have a position of power, then you have to use that power to help the community. You have to show the community that there's, there's more beyond the struggle. My grandfather... His name was Carlisle Francis, and he was from Jamaica, and he was a Pan-Africanist, and he traveled all the way to Africa, to Ghana, and tracked our family's history to where we came from in Ghana. And me hearing the stories of my grandfather and my other ancestors that was able to do all these great things, it inspired me, and it told me that I could do something great, too. Fantastic. And you're doing something great. You're honoring them by what you're doing. I am... Just am really impressed. Masiri. I would say that my inspiration behind this really started when I was very young. And I always saw my my family, my parents, you know, really involved in the Guinean community, helping to support newcomers who were transitioning from Guinea into the United States, helping them with their immigration. Uh, process, helping them apply to school and start their start their lives here in the United States. And so seeing them be so passionate about their community and be so passionate about supporting people who were like them and, and supporting their transition to the United States, that really inspired me to commit myself to a life of service. And then also, I would say when I was younger, I think I was like 12, 13, I had the chance to go to Guinea for the first time as uh, as a adolescent and going to Guinea I saw some really disparate inequality I saw my life in the United States and I compared it to my life in I mean to my family's life in Guinea and I thought you know why is it that 
my country is so poor. Why is it that people living here don't have the same opportunities that I have um, or don't have the same experiences that I have? And so after that experience, I continued to challenge that notion and, you know, really tried to find answers to the question that I had and ended up writing my college essay on uh, the inequalities between Guinea and the United States. And once I was able to uh, transition into university, I studied uh, global development and uh, international affairs. And I really wanted to know why it was that Black communities around the globe were um, experiencing these kind of, this kind of underdevelopment that was a trend, a common theme between, between Black communities around the globe. And so I think that was one of the major reasons why I was inspired to do this. And like Nassim mentioned, the ideals of Pan-Africanism has been uh, a driving force too, because, you know, once you leave your formal education system, you don't really, like when you're thinking about your formal education system, you don't really get a chance to learn about great leaders, Black leaders who were able to do a lot of important work that provided you the space to be here today. And so I kind of view this work as a way of honoring the people who came before us and continuing the effort and the drive that they had to advance Black communities and address racism and address colonialism and the legacies of those issues and how we could mobilize our communities to come together and and see a common goal through. So we're getting to the end, but I wanted to just ask maybe one, one, maybe one more question. What do you say to others your age or in your generation who are thinking they don't really have the power to impact the world in any material way? They look around and they see injustice. They look around and they see problems. They look around in their communities, maybe, and they see violence and they see people suffering. Maybe they're suffering themselves. So they're looking around and they're seeing this and they're thinking, I really don't have the power to make any kind of impact here. What do you say to them? When I think about young people today, young people like myself, and when they think about how they don't have any power, I would say that that's not true. (laughs) And so I I point back to 2020, uh, the Black Lives Matter movement. And I mean, it was such a pivotal moment for me as as a student, as a young person. And I'm sure it was a pivotal moment for everyone else as well, because that was a point in time where for the first time we were able to come together and protest and demonstrate how we wanted change for our communities and how we didn't want uh, Black people to be killed anymore uh, as a result of police violence, you know? And recognizing that that issue was not only one that was happening in the United States, but a symptom of racism and discrimination and the global policing system of Black people around the globe, that kind of advocacy was translated and seen in France. It was seen in Nigeria with the Insars movement. It was seen in South Africa. It was seen in Brazil. So it was in places where there were Black people who were experiencing the same things. And so I think that, you know, when you look at the way that we were able to 
uh, mobilize and raise awareness about an issue like that, I think that that only shows, only goes to show that, you know, we're capable of so much more and that if we wanted to have an impact on the world, we could. All, all it takes is a little bit of organization, a little bit of passion and focus, and, you know, we can achieve these things. And so I would just like to point back to, to great leaders in the past whose names still ring today, leaders like Marcus Garvey, leaders like Malcolm X, leaders like Stokely Carmichael, who started movements and who advanced their communities at the ages of 19, 20, 21, 22. And so a lot of these things, a lot of these movements and a lot of the civil rights and liberation movements that have gone through and that have been um, happening throughout the past were led by youth, were led by people who were young and who saw an issue and wanted to challenge the status quo. And I think that we should continue in, in working through that spirit and continue to serve our community that way as well. And so anyone can be a change maker as long as you have the drive and the focus and the commitment to yourself and to your community. Very well said, Nassim. I would honestly say that the power is within you. And I, w- I would piggyback off of what Nasiri said. In 2020, we were in Atlanta and we were a part of the Atlanta demonstrations. And while we were there, I remember looking around at the crowd and how everybody was so unified. I even started to chant, oh, um, no justice, and then hear, to hear everybody else say no peace. And to hear and to say all of these chants and the things that we were saying, it showed me that we actually had power and that the power was within us. And we only had to use the power we had to make a change in the community. And so I think that with anything that's going on currently in our country and around the world, it it just takes us to come together as a community and to build structure because structure is everything. And time is now. If we want to do what we need to do, if we want to build our community, we have to work and we have to do it now. Well, I love how you say, Masiri was talking about movements. You both were talking about movements, which is the result of activism. But you're also talking, Nassim, about structure. And you've actually put into place some structure through your small institution, right? You're building an institution because I think Movements can get attention, bring attention to problems. They can galvanize the the spirits of people to move toward change. But it's actually the institutions that do the work. They actually get the change done. They organize people in a way that they can work in a more structured and concerted way to actually get things done. So I appreciate how you move from movement to institution so that you can do this work over a long period of time, even when the cameras go away, because that's what people forget. You know, the cameras are there for a moment. You know, right now, no one's really talking a whole lot about Ukrainian refugees and relief efforts, but the work has to go on and it work goes on. Uh, When the cameras go away, the work goes on through institutions like the ones that you're building. So I really respect your uh, insight about knowing the the importance of both. Sometimes we forget that. 
Well, look, I, I want to thank both of you for what you're doing. I think you are remarkable people, remarkable people. And I want to real quick, how can people join you in what you're doing? Should they reach out to your organization, Noir United International on the web? How should people find you on LinkedIn? What what was your preferred way for people to reach out and connect with you? Because I'm sure there will be others who might want to say, what can we do to join them? So anyone can currently go to our website at noirunited.org, N-O-I-R-U-N-I-T-E-D.org. They can also follow us on our Instagram and Twitter and um, also on LinkedIn as well. We are working on a community platform that will be launched next year. So we will be able to collaborate and share information amongst the community. So that's coming soon. And if you have our website and social medias, you'll be able to join the platform once it's released. I'd also like to add, you know, you, you spoke about movement and we, Nassim and I like to see ourselves in our work as a movement in itself. And so this, I would just like to put this out there to anyone who's listening, anyone who's young and Black and wants to spread their gifts to the world. We want you to join us. We want you to see yourselves as part of us and see yourselves as someone who can have an impact, not only on a local scale, but also on a global scale. And we want Black people to be Black internationalists and to think about, you know, how we can all play a part in determining, you know, our international system, determining the global structures. And, you know, I think that anyone can be a part of that. And so I would just like to put that out there. If you care about Black people and you care about global issues and you, um, even if you don't know how to care or where to start, we want you to come and join us. You can join us as a volunteer or, or you can just be someone who wants to learn more and engage with us in our programming. And so, you know, I'm just putting that out there. We want to build community across the globe. And our goal is to become the largest Black-led global development and humanitarian organization in the world. And so in order to do this, we need people who are ready and who are ready to make a change and I, we believe that anyone can can do that. And there are no special qualities. You don't have to be extraordinary. You don't have to be in, at an Ivy League school. There, there's Anyone can be a change maker in their community as long as you have the passion for it and as long as you have the, the determination to make change. Well, clearly both of you have that. So to all of our listeners, you've been hearing Masiri Aribo and Nassim Ashford and they lead an organization called Noir United. And you can find them at noirunited.org. I hope you do because they are remarkable people, as I said, and doing great work. And to all of those who are listening for the first time, the Heart of Giving podcast is found on all major podcast platforms. And it would be really great if you subscribe to the show so you can get notifications of every weekly episode that comes up. We're talking to people like Masiri and Nassim on a regular basis, remarkable people from different parts of our world doing great work. And I know you'll be inspired by their stories. Also, if you want to support the podcast, you can do so by going to givegive.org 
and making a contribution, and we would certainly appreciate that help. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you back here next week. You've just listened to the Heart of Giving podcast with Art Taylor. Be sure to tune in next time for a brand new episode. To listen to our other interviews, visit heartgiving.podbean.com. That's heartgiving.podbean.com. Subscribe to our show on major podcast platforms. The thoughts and opinions expressed on this podcast are the views and opinions of the guests, not those of the BBB Wise Giving Alliance or program affiliates. This podcast is for information and educational purposes only and is copyrighted with all rights reserved. This podcast is protected by Podbean's Terms of Service.